In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation, its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. <clears throat> he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed. The footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. But when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of the Lord. Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honour. They are now dead. They live no more. Their spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation. Lord, you have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. <clears throat> Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth rise and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will 
give birth to her dead. Go, my people. Enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. Thanks, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Now, let me ask you, are you someone who is good at waiting? How would you answer that question for yourself? How would somebody who knows you answer that question? Are you someone who is good at waiting? Now, English people apparently have an international reputation for being good at waiting in queues. Um, You might have spotted this if you're from overseas. Skipping a queue is one of the worst evils you can commit in England. And failing to join a queue is simply absurd for an English person. George Mikes, in his book, How to Be an Alien, wrote, an Englishman, even if he is alone, forms an orderly queue of one. (laughs) Now, it might be true that English people like queuing, um, but it's fair to say that not many of us find it easy to wait, do we? Whether it's waiting for a parcel, waiting to speak to somebody on the other end of a phone... Uh, waiting for a summer holiday. We're not very good at waiting, are we? We can understand why so much of our society is geared towards reducing the time we need to wait. And even when we're forced to wait in, say, a waiting room or um, somewhere else, we try and get out our phones to avoid the pain of waiting, don't we? We find it very hard to wait. Let me ask you about waiting in the Christian life. Are you someone who's good at waiting if you're a Christian this morning? Now, every person who acknowledges Jesus as their Lord and Savior has become a person who waits. The book of James describes Christians as those patiently waiting for the Lord's coming. Patiently waiting. Does that describe you this morning? Now, there is teaching out there which claims the name Christian that says that we don't need to wait. You know, God gives us our best life now. All the blessings that God wants to give his people are available now. But for those who know their Bibles and for those who know the realities of life, we know that we are called to patiently wait for the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so the question we need to ask, the question that we'll be thinking about this morning is, how do we wait well? What does it look like to wait well as Christians? All of us feel the pain of waiting as we face opposition, as we face our own weakness and our own sin as we face the brokenness of this world. It's painful to wait. It's hard to wait. We might grumble as we wait, but wait we must. And this chapter in Isaiah is here to teach us how to wait well. If you're listening this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want to invite you to join the waiting people of God to see what that would look like and to see why it is the best life that you could possibly live. This morning, we're going to think about three things that we see about the people of God in this chapter. They are righteous, they are waiting, and they are confident. We're going to start with that first one, the righteous people of God. Now, we spent the last few weeks looking at the book of Isaiah, and if you're new to the Bible, um, Isaiah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament 
who wrote about 700 years before Jesus came. And his prophecies are looking forward, telling the people about a future day that will come. Do you see that in verse 1? The way that Isaiah talks about the future is with that phrase in verse 1. In that day, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Now, I want you to think back for a moment to our time of COVID isolation. Now, I know probably you don't want to think back to that time. Um, but there was a period of time, wasn't there, where we couldn't sing as a church. We weren't allowed to sing as a church. And we were looking forward to a day, weren't we, when we could sing again. It was a day of joy and emotion. That might give you a sense of the anticipation of this day in verse 1. Let's see the song that is going to be sung on this day. Have a look at verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. So we begin here in verse 1 with an image of a strong city. But just come down a few verses to verse 5 with me, and we'll see another city that is far less secure. Have a look at verse 5. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. So at the beginning of our time in Isaiah a few weeks ago, I mentioned that we would see a tale of two cities, a tale of two cities, and here we see them side by side. The first is God's city where salvation is found. It is built by God, strong and secure. But the second city is the lofty city. This one is built on human pride and will come crashing down. It will be brought so low in verse 6 that the oppressed and the poor, the weakest in society, will trample it down. I don't know if you've read about um, the city being built in Saudi Arabia um, at the moment called Neom. Um, The name means new future. It's a $500 billion project that spans 10,000 square miles. And the aim is to have an automated city with robots performing functions like caregiving and Um, you know, taking deliveries to homes and that kind of thing. And it's going to be powered by wind and solar power alone. It's a vision of the future, neon. A plan to build something that is new and lasting, open for visitors in 2025. But here Isaiah reminds us that there is only one city that will last, only one city that truly offers a new future, the city of God. And in this city, do you see that you won't find robots and solar power, but you will find salvation. That's the key thing to see in verse 1. The city is a picture of the place where salvation is to be found. But who is granted entry? Who will stream through the gates of this city? Who's going to enjoy the salvation of the Lord forever? Well, that brings us to verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. So on this day, the gates of the city will be opened wide. Salvation will be made available. And you see who walks in? The righteous nation. The righteous nation enters the city. This is what we need stamped on our visa if we're to get in to the city of God. This is the entry requirement, righteousness. It is a word that means just and upright. It is the righteous who receives salvation. 
But the problem all the way through Isaiah, and the problem we've been thinking about over the past few weeks, is that that does not describe the people who Isaiah is writing to, does it? Chapter 1 and verse 4, we saw this a few weeks ago. Isaiah said to the people of Judah, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt. Sinful nation, that's how the people are described in Isaiah. They had filled the land with idols. Isaiah says their hands were full of blood and they were unjust. But now in chapter 26, the city is made available to people The gates are open, and in walks a righteous nation. It's the same tension we felt, I think, in Deuteronomy when we were looking through those chapters a few weeks ago. How can a rebellious nation become a a righteous nation? How can sinners receive salvation? Well, it's helpful, I think, to see the parallel statement in verse 2 as we answer that question. Do you see how the righteous nation are described? They're also the nation that keeps faith. We see the same idea in verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast. Why? Because he trusts in you. And then verse 4 makes it even clearer. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. So you see what's going on in these verses. Salvation, righteousness and peace all come through faith. Trusting in the Lord is the way into this city of salvation. When we turn forward to the New Testament, we see that the same things um, are present there. This has always been the way of salvation. Let me read for you uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at this chapter in more depth in a couple of weeks' time. Um, But notice with me the same themes here in Romans, verse 5. Paul writes there, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. To justify someone is to declare them righteous, to declare them not guilty. And so as in Isaiah, righteousness and peace with God come through faith. But there's an important addition in Romans 5. Here's how the verse concludes. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who deserves entry into this city. He is the only one who is righteous, perfectly just, without sin, deserving life in God's kingdom forever. And do you see that it is through Jesus Christ that we are granted the same access into the city of God? When Jesus died on a cross, he was taking the punishment in the place of sinful people, rebellious people, so that we might become part of the righteous nation through faith in him. And so as we think about that day of verse 1, in a very important sense, that day has already come. When Jesus died on the cross and the curtain temple was torn in two, the gates to salvation were thrown wide open. All who come to him now in faith can be part of this city and enjoy God's salvation. We can join in that song now that we will be singing for all eternity. And yet, in another sense, we still wait, don't we? Because we await the final fulfillment of verse 3. Did you see how we're described in verse 3? You will keep... In perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast. Perfect peace. Now, in the original Hebrew, this is the same word repeated twice. Shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. Wholeness, wholeness. Perfect peace. Believers in Jesus enjoy peace with God now through our Savior. We can be reconciled to him, but we still look forward to a day, don't we, when we will enjoy perfect peace in a world of peace where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will be ruling over this world forever. 
In other words, the righteous people of God are still restless because we are still waiting. And so Isaiah now moves from the future to the present and into the waiting room as we come to the waiting people of God in verses 7 to 19. What does it look like to wait for that perfect peace, to wait for the final salvation of the Lord? How can we patiently wait? Well, I think there are three things that Isaiah teaches us in these verses. There will be yearning, there will be frustration, and there will be confidence. Firstly, Isaiah says that the waiting people of God will be filled with yearning. Have a look at verse 7 with me. The path of the righteous is level, O upright one. You make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Do you see that as God's people walk in the way of salvation, with a smooth path that God has laid out for them, not because it's easy, but because it's direct and we know where we're heading. Do you see what the people of God are yearning for? Lord, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Do you see the emphasis? There is an unfulfilled desire that rests within the people of God because we do not see our God yet. Like a husband might long to see his wife after a long absence, or like a daughter longs to see their parents after a year abroad. So the the, the people of God, the waiting people of God, yearn because we we want to see God. We yearn for him. And in verse 8, do you see that there's a particular yearning for God's people? Do you see that in verse 8? They are yearning for the name and renown of God. That's the desire of their hearts. This is what occupies their minds in the night. This is what consumes their thoughts in the morning. It is the hour and the honor and renown of God. We can learn a lot from our desires, can't we? Um, Our desires and longings teach us what we value in life. What is it that captures our attention? What is it that fills our minds? What gets us most animated and agitated? Well, I want to admit that rarely is the name of God my deepest yearning. Very rarely are my first thoughts and last thoughts the glory of God. But the more we know God and the more we understand his salvation and the more we know the future that awaits us, then little by little, day by day, this yearning for God and his glory will capture our hearts. It's what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? The very first request in that prayer, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, hallowed be your name. It's more than a prayer simply for God to be glorified in my life, isn't it? This is for the name and renown of God to spread across the earth as people come to know him as he is. This is for the glory of God to reach the nations and for the people of the earth to recognize their creator. That's what we're praying. That's what we're yearning for. This is why God's waiting people long for the Lord to come, because we know that when he comes, the world will see him as he truly is. Every hindrance to the full recognition of God's glory will be removed, and our yearning will be over. But if that is our yearning now, if that's what it's like to be one of the waiting people of God, as we yearn for the name and reputation of God, then hand in hand with that yearning will also be a sense of deep frustration. Frustration. Because if God is worthy of all glory, and we know that and we yearn for that, then the world's rejection of God will be deeply unsettling to the people of God. 
This is what I think is going on in these middle couple of verses in our chapter, verses 10 and 11. They express an unsettling reality for God's people. Have a look at verse 10. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. God shows grace to the wicked here in verse 10, and the wicked turn a deaf ear. They do not learn righteousness. They do not regard the Lord's majesty. We see this all in, in the world all around us, don't we? There is an uncomfortable predictability about the response of the world to the grace of God. You might be wondering, sitting here, how, how has God shown his grace? Maybe you're, you're not a, a Christian believer this morning, and you're wondering, how has God shown me grace when life feels hard? Is it right to say that God has shown grace to you? Well, let me mention a couple of ways that God has shown grace to the wicked. The first is his common grace. Jesus says that our Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides good things to the atheist as well as the believer. Food, life, health, breath, possessions, the sun, water, the resources of the earth, the ability to mine and mould these resources to provide for our needs. God is lavish in his grace to the whole world. He's been gracious too in the way that the wicked benefit from the teaching of the Bible. Just consider with me our society as one example. Our society is built on centuries of Christian teaching. So much of the ideas and the ideals that we take for granted are built upon the good news of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the Bible. Just listen to how one writer puts it. This is Marcello Perla, who is a self-confessed atheist, uh, president of the Italian Senate in the early 2000s. He says this. He says, without the Christian vision of the human person, our political life is doomed to become the mere ex exercise of power and our science to divorce itself from moral wisdom, our technology to become indifferent to ethics and material well-being blind to our exploitation of others and the environment. Do you see what he's saying? The, the Christian vision of the human person, the dignity and value of the human person built upon the teaching of the Bible has had an influence positively on politics, on science, on technology, on material well-being. We could multiply the examples. Much of our society is founded upon the grace God has shown us through a long history of Christian teaching and living. And just as an aside, if we were to, um, you know, if we were to move away from the Bible and, and, and think that we can maintain those benefits, then that is like cutting down a tree and still expecting apples to come each autumn. Soon the apples will rot away, won't they? God has been gracious in his common grace to humankind. He's also been gracious to us in his judgments. That sound, might sound like a, a paradox, but verse 9, his judgments come upon the earth and the people of the world learn righteousness. That is God's intention with his judgments. C.S. Lewis describes this when he says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Every pain in this world is supposed to wake us up to the reality of God. We are supposed to learn that there is a judgment to come that is far worse than any pain we might feel in this life. And yet so often, rather than listening to the megaphone, the world carries on in its state of slumber. If you're a Christian this morning, then I'm sure you feel something of the frustration of living in a world that does not respond to the grace of God. 
You might share the good news of Jesus with a friend, invite someone to come to church or try and show kindness to somebody in your flat at uni only to find people apathetic or perhaps antagonistic to the message of Jesus. Do you see how these twin themes of yearning and frustration go hand in hand for the waiting uh, people of God? If we yearn for the majesty of the Lord, we will feel the frustration of living in a world that disregards him. And the more we see him trample down, both personally, publicly, then the more we will yearn for his return. That's what it's like to belong to the waiting people of God. There's a frustration, there's an unsettled nature to it. There's a dissatisfaction with how the world is, not because it inconveniences us, but because it ignores the God that we love. This was brought home to me when I was reading the account of Henry Martin in um, the book Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice. I know that some people have read it here. Martin was a, a 19th century Christian who left behind an academic career in order to take the message of Jesus to India. And John Stark, writing about Henry Martin, says that Martin's customary serenity was only disturbed when anybody insulted his Lord. On one occasion, when a blasphemous statement was made about Jesus, Martin wrote, I was cut to the soul by this blasphemy. And when someone asked him about his discomfort, he said to them, I could not endure existence if Jesus were to be always thus dishonored. It is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. It's a painful question to ask ourselves, I think. When is our serenity disturbed? When do we find it hard to endure existence? Is it when our Lord is insulted? Is it when he's not regarded? God's people pray, verse 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but people do not see it. And so they cry out for the vindication of God's name, for his glory to be known. Hallowed be your name. Do you see the waiting people of God are yearning? And because they're yearning for the glory of the Lord, they're also frustrated, deeply unsettled in a world that dishonors God. But not just that. This brings us to the third mark of the waiting people of God. They're also confident confident. Throughout verses 12 to 19, we see two ideas here that come up a lot in Isaiah, and really these ideas run right through the Bible. They're really important to grasp. The first is that people are unable to bring about their own salvation, and the second is that God is perfectly able to bring about our salvation, human inability and divine ability. Two things we need to get clear on if we are to be confident in the Lord's salvation. Have a look at verse 12 with me, verse 12. The people pray, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. We return to that theme of peace that we saw in verse 3. And as with earlier, it is the Lord who establishes peace for his people. The Lord does it. Now, isn't that a humbling statement for God's people to make in verse 3? All that we have accomplished, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Human inability, divine ability. Even the superpowers who ruled over the nation of Israel during its turbulent history, even those mighty nations are no more. Have a look at verse 13. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honour. They are now dead, they live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You've extended all the borders of the land. The people of God recognize that they cannot achieve anything without the Lord. 
Other lords have ruled over Israel. Other lords will rule over Israel um, from this point onwards. Think about the pharaohs of Egypt. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus, Darius, the kings of Assyria. But all the lords who ruled over God's people are now dead. Throughout their history, Israel were tempted to lean their confidence on these foreign lords and, and make alliances with them and allegiances with them. But these verses show just how futile that is, don't they? As the people look back on their history, they see that the Lord has been the main player in the game. He has enlarged the nation. He has brought salvation to person after person, family after family, gaining glory for himself. And God will be the one who continues to accomplish everything for his people. And this humble recognition um, continues into the next few verses. Now, if you've been here for Isaiah, then you'll be used to vivid images that Isaiah puts before our mind. Here's another one in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16. Lord, they came to you in their distress, they being the, the people of Israel. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, we have not given birth to people of the world. Now this describes how is, um, the people of Isaiah's day felt as they lived under the discipline of the Lord. At various points in their history, as we've already said, they were ruled by faithless kings, exiled to foreign nations, and surrounded by other gods. They were being disciplined by the Lord for their rejection of him. Isaiah says that it was like the distress of a woman in labor. But every attempt to save themselves came to nothing. After all the distress, all the pain, all the striving, all the groaning... They could only give birth to wind. Isn't that an astonishing prayer for the people to pray? Isn't that a, a painful prayer to pray, a humble prayer for the people to pray? They confess that their human attempt at salvation has led to nothing. And I wonder whether we might learn the same lesson today. I wonder whether we would be willing to make the same humble confession that the people make here in Isaiah. Because all the time we hear about new initiatives new inventions, new ideologies that claim to be the answer to our world's problems. And I wonder if you've noticed as well that those ideas are often framed in sort of salvation language, often sort of put in terms of salvation, salvation through human endeavor. Let me give you just one example from a few years ago from Google, 2017. Here's the news headline. Google's director of engineering, Ray Kurzweil, believes that we are little more than a decade away from taking major steps towards immortality. By 2045, according to Ray, humans will be able to live forever. This will be achieved through the invention of nanotechnology that can be placed in our bodies, improving our immune systems and fighting disease. And not only will this technology prolong life, he also says that we'll create more profound forms of communication than we're familiar with today, more profound music, and funnier jokes, brilliant. What is this promise as we scratch under the surface? It's the promise of salvation through human endeavor. That's one example, a rather extreme example, but we could multiply examples, couldn't we, across science, education, healthcare, politics, from generation to generation, salvation through human endeavor. Now, of course, it's right, isn't it, that we try and improve life for people in this world, that is right. But ultimately, where has it led us? Where has it led us? Where will it lead us? When all is said and done, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to life forever with God, we have merely given birth to wind. 
It's a striking confession that the people make here in verse 18. It is a critique of all human endeavor and an acknowledgement that the only one ultimately who is able to bring about life and salvation is the Lord, and he will. And he will. Have a look at verse 19. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Here is divine ability for human inability. There will be a resurrection. There will be life forever. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this new age of life has already begun. And it will extend for all of time. Why would we place our confidence in the gods and ideas of the world when we can place our confidence in this God and in this salvation? How do God's people wait for his coming salvation? What will it mean to patiently wait? Well, there's yearning, there's frustration, there's confidence. God's people yearn for God's glory. They're frustrated when his glory is not acknowledged, but all the while they are confident, not in human endeavor, but in divine salvation. So I want to end now where this chapter does and think briefly about the security of the people of God, the secure people of God. I think these last couple of verses are a great way to end our time, both in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, because they remind us of the clear decision facing us today. You might remember from Deuteronomy that God there sets before the people a choice between life and death, between blessing and curse, between obedience and disobedience. And all the way through Isaiah, we've seen those twin themes as well, haven't we, of salvation and judgment, the offer of life to all who receive it and the threat of judgment for all who refuse it. And this is where we'll end in verses 20 and 21. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. The coming of the Lord is the moment to which all of human history is straining towards. And as verse 21 tells us, it will be a day when the Lord will emerge from his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. Every evil will be revealed. Everything hidden will be disclosed and the Lord will bring justice to this earth. He will vindicate his name. But as we see throughout the Bible story, God in his grace always provides a secure place of refuge for those who would be willing to turn there. A place of refuge for those who are willing to come to him in humble trust. It's a theme we see, for example, in the narrative of the flood in Genesis 6. The flood came on the earth in the time of Noah and God provided the ark. We see it when God's wrath passed over the Egyptians at the Passover and God provided the blood of the lamb. We see it when God's glory passed in front of Moses in Exodus and God hid him in the crag of a rock. And when the Lord Jesus Christ went to his death in our place, God provided a source of refuge for all people for all time if they would only hide themselves in him by faith. So as we end, I want to show you um, how this contrast plays out in the book of Revelation, the, the final book of the Bible, where we read about the coming of the Lord um, this is the contrast that is made in this book. Let's see first the response of those who don't know Jesus. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 16 on the screen. These people, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? People here try and find safety by asking the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, but they find no place of shelter. But there is a different group in the book of Revelation, and I'll end our time with these words, a group who have found refuge in Jesus Christ, safety in him and life with him. Just consider the safety of the people of God as I read these verses, chapter 7. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you prepared salvation for your people. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sins so that we might be declared part of the righteous nation We thank you that now we can know salvation and peace through faith in him. We thank you that we can sing the song of salvation, that we will spend eternity singing. Heavenly Father, I pray for those here who do not know the peace and life you provide through Jesus. Please, would they humbly acknowledge their own inability to save themselves and your perfect ability and willingness to save them. And for all of us who believe in Jesus and who are waiting for him, please increase our yearning. Please help us in our frustration and please give us confidence that our trust is in the only person who can keep us safe on the day of judgment. We acknowledge, Father, that all we have accomplished, you have done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.